Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's time for our monthly series, Doing Democracy, and today we're examining one of the crucial factors eroding trust in that democracy. But it's not polarization or a political party's dysfunction or even gridlock. We're going to talk about how policies are implemented in the digital age, how they lead to problems, and what happens when people encounter a government technology that fails them. We're joined by Jennifer Palka, author of the book Recoding America, And she's going to give us an inside and deeply insightful look into the efforts to build government capacity to actually serve the people in ways big and small. She's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Jennifer Polko is the founder of Code for America. She helped create the new governmental unit, the U.S. Digital Service, and she's also the author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. This book is like a field guide to some of the major problems that our government has had over the past 15 years. For all of you who have asked yourself, wait, why did healthcare.gov initially flop? Why were states unable to process unemployment insurance claims at the beginning of the pandemic? And how can government spend so much money on technology solutions to turn out so badly? This book explains it all with an insider's level of detail, compassion and respect for the civil servants, and an outsider's ability to see what the bureaucracies cannot. So it's truly an eye-opener for how our government actually runs, and it's a perfect installment of our series, Doing Democracy, running now through the 2024 election. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. That was the best intro I've heard. I think I'm going to rewrite my copy. That you can steal it. That can be your bio. I appreciate um, it. Thank you. So before we get into some of the details of the kind of particular crises, I want you to give us the stakes. Like we're going to talk about software and databases, but what do those things have to do with like our democracy? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question to start with. I mean, I've been on this journey of being the government technology person. And then it was like, wait a minute, this technology is in the supposed to enable services. And so, hey, we have a service delivery problem. Um, And, you know, the more you look at service delivery, you realize that we are really failing people. And so we say you're going to have SNAP benefits or unemployment insurance benefits. And then for 
a lot of people do get them, but for so many people, they don't get them. And it feels mm-hmm. like a kind of epic bait and switch. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's not just that. I mean, if you look at, for instance, the Inflation Reduction Act, where we've said we're going to build all this green technology and green infrastructure, and then it's we're worried like we're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. It's much more, I think, than service delivery. It's this feeling, I think, that we all increasingly have, even if we can't articulate it. The government's supposed to do something and it's not able to do it. We yeah. we decide on something through our messy democratic process, <laughs> but then we don't deliver on we what we said we done. would. And and you know, the stakes to me really I think are less I mean, yes, it's about are we getting somebody SNAP benefits? But it's also, are we eroding people's faith in democracy? Uh, you know, there was a study done uh, several years ago now that showed that people who apply for means-tested benefits mm-hmm. vote at lower rates. And I think that's, you know, that was done pre-Trump. So mm-hmm. if we're alienating people because they have such a poor experience with government, it's not just the failure of getting the benefit, but the way in which in that process, you're kind of insulted, right? Yeah. And, and talked down to. Um, if, if we were alienating people before, and now there's this option of sort of, you know, populism and authoritarianism, is it, is it possible that, that we are driving people mm. to not just not vote, but, but, you know, really want that strong man because they see that it's not right. working? When you saw, particularly early in the response to the pandemic, the way the Chinese government was so <laughs> uh, aggressive and successful in doing certain things. And you had a lot of Americans going like, how come they're so good at this and we are not, <laughs> right? Um, Absolutely. So you were brought in at the beginning of that pandemic to help with this crisis at California's Employment Development Department. You know, that's EDD, people call it. And they're the people who are supposed to uh, provide the employment, unemployment benefits. Um, remind us of what was happening, not just in California, but across the country with these unemployment insurance uh, claims. So shutdown happened mid-March 2020. Uh so many people were laid off. I don't remember the number. It was like more than 10 times. It's crazy. Times. The chart looks insane. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, so you, you had uh, labor agencies in every state in the country suddenly have 10, 15 times as many applicants as they had, you know, the week before, but also many more times than they'd ever had. Um, and not only that, you had Congress saying, you know, or quickly thereafter saying, let's let's increase benefits. Let's have this pandemic unemployment assistance for gig workers, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I mean, unsurprisingly to me, though, people did seem surprised. Pretty much no state was able to get those employment benefits out the door in a reasonable amount of time. Hmm. So it was end of July. So it'd been a couple of months Um when the state called me and and said, will, will you come help? And so at that point, you had people who'd been laid off in March. Um, they hadn't gotten their benefits. It was getting to be August and then September. And, you know, this was really an incredible crisis for people. Right. I, mean, I, I was talking to like staffers at state legislative offices who were completely overwhelmed with phone calls. Like most of the phone calls they were getting were from people who had gotten laid off and didn't have their benefits. And they were saying, you know, they were reporting things like, you know, they're they're calling for the sixth time and they're saying, I'm on my last packet of ramen. What am I supposed to do here? Right. Yeah. And they were promised 
that there was a response <laughs> and the response had been passed. It's like mm-hmm. if you can imagine how much that corrodes your faith that the government actually cares about you, that the, the government's going to take care of you in this time of crisis. You know, one of the things in the book that I, I thought was just so revealing was the inability to count the backlog. Like we knew there was a backlog. We knew a bunch of people had applied. Yeah. Um, but no one could really say for sure how many people that was. And I remember at the time, and also even you know, rereading the book, you have this feeling of like, wait, what do you mean you can't count it? It's yeah. all coming in on a computer. Aren't computers good at counting, yeah. right? So like, <laughs> why, why couldn't we figure out what the backlog was? Yeah, you know, it's funny because um, I brought in a team. Uh, there was a, a guy on my team who was assigned to count, you know, working with the team at EDD to count the backlog is really strong at what he does, knows tech and knows government. And we thought, okay, week one, we'll get the backlog counted. That's sort of table stakes. And, you know, it was seven weeks before we got a count of the backlog. And the best way I have to describe it really is that, you know, everyone's saying there's this unemployment insurance system and something's wrong in it. But when you go look at it, it isn't really a system. Mm -hmm. It is as if, you know, there's these archaeological layers that have accumulated since sort of 70s and 80s. Funnily enough, they map almost exactly to each decade after that. And we invest, but we we don't invest sort of backward looking. We just sort of add a layer, you know, the old uh, federal CI used to call them layers of paint. <laughs> um, we add a layer of paint on top. And then, you know, as you know, if you've ever overpainted, at some point that paint cracks. Um, but, you know, there are also these archaeological layers that just that the pieces don't talk to each other well. Mm-hmm. And so you had to go in and sort of define what the backlog was and then run it in all of these separate systems and then try to figure out how to dedupe it. Mm-hmm. And these systems are, yes, antiquated, but more importantly than antiquated, they're just really distributed and they don't talk to each other very well. Well, in some ways, you know, reading the story of it, 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 it's almost a story about a heroic set of people who made older systems work, right? Because there's this database at the center, and then they built all these macros over the top of it to do the things that they were being asked to do by the federal and state government. But of course, then when you try and unwind that type of thing, for people who don't know what a macro is, right, it's like... You know, if you want to automatically paste something in, right, you can like define a set of actions and you can have your computer record it and then you just hit one button. It does all those actions in a row. But like that's how we were actually running. I mean, are running, I assume. Yeah. The the unemployment (laughs) insurance is you've got somebody who came up with a kind of workaround and unwinding those things is, is way more difficult than building them. Yeah, and let me be clear, because you said heroic, and and I know what you meant, which is the people in EDD over the years, not yeah, yeah. those of us who came in. Uh, you know, it's very easy to look from the outside and say, oh, people here must be, you know, incompetent in some way. In fact, they're incredibly creative, the public servants who've been making this work for years, but within uh, a system that's not well designed to get yeah. the good outcomes. So one of the things that was interesting back then is the Newsom administration, you know, uh, as he would have said back then, wanted to meet this moment. Um, And as a result, they managed to ramp up staffing. They hire tons of people for EDD, right? Because if you've got a backlog, you need people, right? But that totally backfired, as you found out. Uh, It was unfortunate, yes. Um, So the the layers of technology that map to the decades go back to about, about the 80s. 
the layers of policy go back 90 years. Unemployment insurance started in the 1935 Social Security Act. And so this is critical to understanding why hiring 5,000 new people actually uh, slowed our processing. In fact, we were able to show that every new hire reduced uh, our, our speed uh, uh, processing. Hmm. And the, the way we, we found this out, um, well, well, first, uh, my colleague Marina had a clue because this one guy that she kept talking to is a claims processor she was working with to understand the system. And he kept saying, I'm not sure about the answer to that question. Let me go check with the other guys. I'm the new guy. I'm the new guy. And she finally said, OK, so you're the new guy. How long have you worked here? And he said, oh, I've only worked here 17 years <laughs> to really know how to process a claim uh, you know, when it requires a tricky one, a tricky yeah. play, a claim that requires something like ID verification, which, to be honest, was the a very large portion of the claims at that point, which was a problem. Um, you have to have been here 25 years or longer. And that's not because just the technology is confusing. It's because we have 90 years of accumulated policy cruft. And so obviously, if it takes you that long to learn how to process a claim, and you hire 5,000 new people, they can't do that work. But what they were doing was taking the time of the experienced claims processors. Right. Uh, and, you know, a big part of what we did really was just help them see where they did need people and get people off the the, the backs, essentially, <laughs> of the experienced claims processors. Oh, man. We're talking about government technology and how it can be improved. We're joined by Jennifer Palka, author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Of course, she founded Code for America and has served as the Chief Deputy Technology Officer for the United States government. I want to hear from you. For those of you who work in tech, how do you think government can do better with technology. Have you considered joining one of these groups, U.S. Digital Service, Code for America, inside or outside government to help on these issues? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Discord, Instagram threads. We're KQED Forum everywhere. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Our guest this morning is Jennifer Palka, who's author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. This is part of our monthly Doing Democracy series, which is going to run from a couple months ago all the way through the 2024 election. It's kind of our chance to step back and think about how and why our government works the way that it does. And before the break, we were talking about California's experience with unemployment insurance and, and EDD, and you, you let off your book with that uh, particular story. What lesson did you take, or what do you think that EDD story shows about our government technology? It, I learned a lot from that, even though it was sort of the last project I worked on in a sort of 12-year history of this <laughs> stuff. You always think, oh, I know everything, and then you, you walk out of it going, okay, I, I've, I've really... I've, I've really, sharpened the lessons. <laughs> I, I have gained an appreciation for things like 90 years of policy cruft that's accumulated and how that's driving the failures in what is seen as a technology problem. And, you know, for me, that that sort of put me on to how do we get our legislators and elected leaders to deal with this in a way, instead of just yelling at the departments about their bad technology, what is their role hmm. in adding to that? And I tell a little story in the, the end of that third chapter about a particular member of the assembly who was piling more mandates on when the department was struggling to do what, you know, Mm -hmm. to clear the backlog and and realizing, you know, that is their instinct and it can be very unhelpful. So what do do we need to do to sort of change the environment in which this delivery is is happening? Um, and, and, And ultimately just, you know, we're not going to solve the problems of government service delivery by focusing exclusively on the technology. We're going to have to look at the system in which it Mm -hmm. operates, which includes things like, you know, why did the head of EDD not want to tell anybody when we figured out that, you know, that hiring was actually slowing us Mm. down? What is in not just the, you know, technology structures, but the cultural structures of government that doesn't allow information at the bottom to reach those at the top? Yeah. You know, we are talking about things that have gone wrong uh, with government technology, but you've kind of spent, what, spent 15 years now, maybe something like that? Let's pretend it's less. Let's pretend, yeah. (laughs) You know, working to make government IT better. I mean, you're surrounded by Silicon Valley people out here. I mean, why not just you yourself go make your fortune? Like, why work on this problem? You know, um, I'm not a technologist, so I'm never going to make a fortune making technology. (laughs) But more broadly, um, you know, for those who really, you know, could, you know, 10 years ago have worked at Google, today worked at some AI startup, you know, I see this over and over again. They get exposed to the problems in government. We we trick them by by having them come work on something for a week or two. Mm. And once they see the impact of working in government and how much they are really needed, how much the skills they bring, not just like coding skills, but product management, sort of being able to think through systems, um, being able to understand the needs of the user of the system and build for that. They're kind of addicted. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not the only one who's choosing this path over another path. um, And I'm probably the least important of them, but uh, it's it's really compelling work. And people talk about it as like, okay, I've done my career in tech, now I'm going to go give back. To a person, they all say, I'm getting more than I'm giving. You really learn about the world in a way that just, just makes your experience richer and makes you wiser about how the world works. 
Well, and, you know, I've heard people say sometimes, you know, government is kind of the ultimate in scale, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you end up impacting so many, so many different people. And it, I mean, it seems to me that the main arc of your book's argument and, and probably your life work, too, is that if you want more government capacity to do good things, then you need to reform the innards of how we deliver that, which is the technology capacity, right? Like these mm-hmm. things, the ability of our government to do things and the technology, the powers that are now kind of one and the same. Yeah, I think that we have had a misunderstanding of the role of government and technology for quite a long time. It goes back to sort of the 60s and and 60s through the 90s when we really thought of this as like, this is just something you buy. You know, Mm -hmm. this is government's role in technology is we're going to have, you know, data processing. Let's get the best price for it. And it's been seen as a purchasing problem, not, you know, Mm -hmm. the line that we used to use when I worked on the Defense Innovation Board is, um, software is something you do, not something you buy. And, you know, as we sort of reconsider that, that gives us the opportunity to understand that policy and the implementation of policy, which is mostly done through technology today, cannot be so distant from each other because that is how we get these really, really poor outcomes. Mm-hmm. Why is it important that people inside the government know how to do rather than just buy it? Can't they just go to conferences and read stuff and know about how it's supposed to work? Why is it important to have people with the actual skills in, in the seat? You know, I think I am definitely not saying that everybody in government needs to know technology inside and out. I mean, I give myself a little pass. I'm not a technologist, and yet I talk about it a lot. I think what I'm saying is um, we have to care about the operations and the implementation. Um, And that has very much not been the case. I mean, I, you know, when I started in, in state, local and federal government, I would hear a lot, you know, what we do is the policy. And the implementation is just is something we hand off. But, you know, look at the unemployment insurance crisis. Yes, you can have the policy that says, you know, people are going to get 600 more dollars or whatever for pandemic unemployment. But if you can't deliver it, you're you're not doing your job. And it it is profound how much that has been seen as somebody else's job, hmm. not government's actual job. So I'm, I'm not trying to get everybody to learn to code. Um what I'm trying to do is to say is to bring the leaders of government to this framework in which the policy and the implementation are not separate. And in fact, more importantly than that, I think that if you're creating policy, that you're actually going to learn what works through the implementation. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be this sort of return cycle where policy and implementation learn from each other instead of what we have today, which is very much a waterfall, a hierarchy. Like the policy is developed um, many, 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 many layers down, a very large you know, bureaucracy. Some guy at a it's, keyboard. <laughs> it's delivered. <laughs> yeah. But there's no, there, there's no dialogue between these two. It's all one way. Yeah. Do you think that's something that's actually fixable or is that baked into how a huge federal or state government works? Both. It is baked in and it's changing. I mean, I see evidence of it changing. I I hear leaders in government say uh, that um, they're changing it in in their spheres of of influence and that they're seeing it change around them. Um, And, you know, you look at the IRS right now, for instance, you know, they have this direct file product. They're taking that really, really seriously as an implementation issue. And they're they're showing that they're going to do something incrementally 
you know, that can that can work for people. They're trying to ship essentially like a, you know, a beta project um, that we never saw that before. And, and it's an evidence of, of real change. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this is an interesting place, you know, that um, IRS component, you know, other countries, sometimes you don't have to file. Sometimes the government just takes care of it. In our case, you know, we all know about TurboTax, right? And the explanation, I think, for a lot of people, particularly sort of anti-corporate type humans, have has been basically that TurboTax lobbied the government to keep the IRS from being able to simplify things because it was sort of part of the, the business uh, for them. Is that the full explanation? Like that is part of it, right? But it's not maybe not the full explanation. Oh, it's it's a big part of it. And, I, you know, if, if you're not familiar with this, you know, look up the ProPublica reporting on what what those guys did to to hide, you know, the the what was supposed to be the free file option for low income people. But no, I mean, you can even see it today. Um, there's a lot of resistance to the IRS doing something like direct file, which is just a step towards us being sort of on par with our peer countries and how we ask people to interact with the tax system. It's it's not even, you know, the full way. But the resistance to it comes from this ideological view that a lot of people have in in government, which is government can't do this, right? It has to be the private sector hmm. doing this work. Government can't be good at delivery. We must rely on contractors. Now, of course, I think we're always going to rely on contractors to do the work, to do a lot of the work. Hmm. But we can be good at the strategy of it, the product management of it. And, you know, we, we really have to fight that belief that it, it can only be done by by the private sector. Well, you're not just writing books about this either, right? I mean, you've gone into the government and you were part of the creation of the U.S. Digital Service. Mm-hmm. Um what what is it? What are those units like? Some people uh, may not be familiar with U.S. Digital Service and 18F, but these are kind of new types of units within the government that do something different than in the past. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there's always been really strong people in government technology, um, but we had a sort of framework for how, a, say, federal agencies, for instance, were supposed to do tech. And uh, it was very much about procurement. Uh, you know, there was not really the tech talent inside the agencies by and large, not not across the board, but by and large, because the idea was, you know, we do the policy and then we we farm it out. So that that quote unquote talent to do tech has been people who do uh, huge, projects to develop a lot of requirements and then a very complicated process of bidding that out through an RFP, request for proposal, uh, and then you sort of try to manage the contract. Um, But you didn't have the internal tech talent to actually know what was being asked for in the Mm. first place and what was going on. And we saw that with the failure, initial failure of healthcare.gov. Of course, yes, it did get much better. And we had a great result at the end of that first open enrollment period. But um, it became very clear at that moment, at least to me, as somebody who was there in government trying to to do this Mm -hmm. when the site failed, that you can't separate that policy and implementation thing. You And you're going to have to have some core understanding of the operations and the technology in both the center of government and in the agencies in order to get this right. So these are folks that that know delivery really well, that know tech, uh, that know user-centered design and product management. And 
it's been 10 years now since we started USDS. And though this group and, and its sister group, 18F, which is at the General Services Administration, while these groups sit in these centralized offices that can go into all these different agencies, I want to be really clear that the point of them is to help build the capacity within the agencies. They are at their best when they are doing it with them and helping them build the teams they need to do it themselves, not sort of directing from the top. They're not they're not supposed to come in and do it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've been very handy to come help shape a project from the beginning and have it come out well, like, you know, the big contrast with healthcare.gov was uh, covidtest.gov, mm. which was hugely successful because it was very well product managed because the administration said from the very beginning, or maybe they sort of fought their way to a seat at the <laughs> table, but let's have, before we even announce this, before we even say we're going to do this, Let's talk with the people who will have to deliver this website and see what they what have to do? say. Yeah. yeah. What can you do? What choices are we going to have to make? And they forced some choices. Like you could have had a much, much more complicated website than what we got with COVID test stuck up. It was if you for those who didn't try it. Right. It was just this very simple form where you put in your address um, if you were already in the database, it would sort of autofill and you sort of hit submit. And a couple of days later, a bunch of COVID tests showed up in your, in your mailbox. And they could have asked for insurance information and vaccination status and this size and of that, family and, and blah, blah, thing, blah, right. blah. But you, know, you had a team that was there from the beginning to say, you know, along with the USPS, the Postal Service, actually the deliver the agency that delivered that. Um, but you had USDS people alongside, you know, standing behind those USPS people saying, if you want this to be scalable, be accessible, you know, uh, be shipped in multiple languages from day one, if you want people to feel good about it, you're going to have to make some choices and make it a lot simpler than you mm. would have normally mm-hmm. if you'd had a whole requirements mm. process. Mm. Let's uh, let's bring in a call. Let's bring in uh, Bill in Sacramento. Welcome, Bill. Yes, hi. Um, so my comment um, is, uh, if you want to eliminate fraud, which has been a problem at EDD, mm-hmm. uh, you need to identify uh, a citizen, a customer, uniquely, uh, generally with the unique key. The legislature said you can't use Social Security number. Um, and okay, if you can't do that, then you're tying people's hands behind their back where there is no solution. And I want to I want to just say this is a solvable problem. The, com- the country of Estonia um, has used for the last 20 years something called very established technology called public key encryption. It's a large random number essentially. They print it up on a card, give it to a citizen that points to they they can use that at any public agency, and it's a portal to all the services. And if they ever lose that, they can invalidate that key, print them up a new card. They're back in business in 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, if we if we did that in in if we did that in California, we'd save oh tens of billions of dollars. And you know the legislature isn't listening to its own technologists. Yeah, thank hey, you, Bill. Thank you. Uh, thank for your perspective. Yeah, I think Bill's point that we often tie people's hands behind their backs, or and by people I mean people implementing policy in government, is absolutely correct. Um, there's a lot of conflicting rules and guidance and law. Um, that you know you got to do this, but yet, but you also can't do this. And we saw that you know we we did I think 
at least temporarily solve that problem of ID verification by installing a commercial ID verification system, uh, which is uh, one of the big three things we did to clear that 1.2 million claims backlog in in uh, uh, at the end of 2020. Um, we didn't solve it the way Estonia did. And I have huge respect for the Estonians. Um, they they do amazing work. What you have to understand is what any government does uh, in a, you know overseas can be inspiration for us. But we have actually very different legal ways that we derive mm-hmm. identity in the U.S., you know, it's it's sort of strange. Uh, we we are probably not culturally going to get to the point where we're going to have a universal ID for every person. It's actually the states that own ID, right? Like it's your passport, you got your um, your driver's license. Your driver's right? license. Yeah, yeah. It's a very federated system of who actually owns ID, and it is a big problem huh. right now that we haven't standardized on you know good ways to identify people online so that they can you can know who they are when they get their services. There is a really great product called uh, Login.gov. It's it's still developing. It actually comes from. Uh, the federal government is offering it to federal agencies and to states, and that's helpful. Is the federalism of the United States the core problem? Like the fact that we do have 50 states doing 50 different things and that has to feed up, you know, and so almost you need the waterfall at some level. Federalism does really, really complicate things. But I think also when we've designed systems like, say, unemployment insurance, which started back in 1935, I don't think we quite accounted for how complex federalism would make things. Um, And so I think you can, we're probably still going to be operating within a federal system. So the question becomes, how do you design programs that work better, given that there's going to be federal control and then state administration, which is true of SNAP and UI and all these other things. Um, We gave the states an enormous amount of latitude to Mm -hmm. decide on everything, basically, about how they wanted to implement unemployment insurance. And that's made it really, really unmanageable. If you look at SNAP, which is also administered by states and then in, Cal- in California by counties, there's it's a little bit tighter in, in, in what yeah. they can do. And so there's a little bit less diversity. We're going to talk about SNAP too after the break uh, because we're talking about government technology and how it can be improved so we can actually improve the government. This is part of our Doing Democracy series. Our guest is the legend Jennifer Palka, author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. We're going to get to more of your calls after the break. If you work in tech, have you thought about joining the government? 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about government technology and how it can be improved so that we can actually improve the practice of government. We're joined by author and I, government technologist? No. How would you describe <laughs> I'm definitely it? Definitely not a technologist. La, you can la, leave it at author. Yes. Uh, Jennifer Palka uh, founded Code for America and has served as Chief Deputy Technology Officer for the U.S. Um, let's bring in Lawrence in Oakland. Welcome, Lawrence. Hi, how are you? Hey, doing well. Thanks for calling. Yeah, I'm just calling in to say I, I, I agree with the, the guest as well as the last caller. Uh, I do work in uh, local government, and a lot of times they bring in technology, and you really don't have a collective of people that have the expertise on the inside that truly understands the policies and procedures to choose a technology and to to actually make things a lot better. And then what generally happens, they hire a consultant on top of a consultant on top of a consultant (laughs) to fix all of this. And in the end, the, 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 the management itself just doesn't, they, everything is outsourced to where the less they can do, they think they are actually doing their job and making things better, but it just, it's complicated. Where I work, I think, all of the systems we have, we have probably over 13, 14 systems. None of them talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's a mess. Mm. Yeah, And it's just, it's insane. Yeah. If anybody going from tech that's going to go into government, they're going to go insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a good way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, Lawrence, um, thank you so much just for like this, the the real description yeah. of how, how a lot of these things work. Um uh, thanks so much for that. I mean, you know, a couple of comments, and, and then I'll let you kind of um, address kind of what Lawrence is talking about. Glenn writes, you know, change management is a key issue. Having worked to implement large-scale business software systems, resistance to change, uh, especially from long-term employees, is a challenge. Quote, this is the way we've always done it, is a mantra. Ron writes, the tech problem you're discussing is very common in developing software for the government or not. Software engineers call it technical debt. Solving the problem can be very expensive. That is to say, rewrite a lot of code. Um, question out of Lawrence's experience, as well as these two comments, is there something different about how the government must interface with technology versus, you know, Glenn and Ron are kind of saying, mm-hmm. yeah, this is just, you know, how technology works. Technical debt accrues. It must be, you know, paid down. And Lawrence is kind of saying, if you're going to go into the government, you're going to go crazy because there's 13 systems that don't talk to each other. I, I think that, I, I mean, I hear a lot. You're talking about the problems of bureaucracy. Big companies have these problems, too. And it's absolutely true. Um, And they can talk about some of the same dynamics. There are a couple things that are different about government, though. Um, One is that if you're, I mean, particularly Silicon Valley, and I don't mean, I'm not one of these people who's like, government should work more like Silicon Valley. But I do say, what do we learn from Silicon Valley that we can can bring to government and, and, and adapt? Um, the implementation is king. 
in, in Silicon Valley. The, the actual application that you are running, the, the service that you are providing, the thing that people are engaging with is the thing everybody cares about. Mm-hmm. They care about the user experience. That sits at sort of the top of the power structure. And in government, we treat that as the a, a minor detail of implementation. And, and, and the People who make decisions are very, very far away from that experience of the user. Another way it's different, honestly, is that you know we in 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 a big company you don't have Congress and uh, and the the governor or the president or the chief of staff as your bosses. Like you can is at least some ability for it all to funnel up to one decision maker. So you're pulled in a lot of directions. You know. One of the things we say about modernization, we talk all the time about government modernization of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is you're modernizing for the sake of modernizing because people in uh, the executive branch and the legislative branch are like, oh, the, you know, the, the technology is old. Let's modernize it. Everything will be better. Like it's a very poor track record. Uh, in in unemployment insurance, for example, during the pandemic, I'm sorry, prior to the pandemic, about half the states had already, quote unquote, modernized their systems. But on average, none of them did any better. And mm. that's pretty typical that's so painful. of these, you know, these modernization programs. We put a ton of money into them. They don't do very well, in part because we're not dealing with that legacy policy debt alongside the technical debt that your second caller spoke to. Yeah. Um, but we're also not clear on the goal because we're, we're, we don't have this sort of you know, cohesive sense, if you're just trying to do what the legislature and so-and-so and someone else wants, your goal for modernization should be we can process claims at 10x the rate. Mm. But we just say modernization because we have this incredibly diffuse uh, decision-making apparatus in which that's what everyone can agree on, not like here's a specific goal. Right, right. Let's bring in um, Bethan, who also uh, works in government. Hey, welcome, Bethan. Hey, um, you actually just spoke to my point. Um, (laughs) I work uh, in local government, and I find that when it comes to enforcing uh, versus uh, application of modernization, um, we have a set of regulations that have existed for a really long time in our state, and um, they don't necessarily take into account uh, what what we're doing now, um, mm-hmm. and that limits us. Yep. Yeah, I mean, so Bethan, when you're in your role, um, how how do you try and fix problems? Then, if you you see that there's these problems, but like, what do you what do you do in response? Um, I I attempt to utilize the uh, technology that isn't necessarily uh, provided to us, but I know can create better systems or better uh, utilize um, mm-hmm. the language that we do have to work with. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm keeping it based, sorry, because I'm not going like, to name it. Got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I also thought for a second you were going to say I go to LinkedIn.com. Uh, <laughs> that's what I thought you were going to say you do when you get frustrated. Um, yeah, can I? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Jen. You know, yeah. so Thank you, Bethan. I'm, I'm glad Bethan and, and the others have all called in because they're – I kind of want more people to hear these folks' voices and hear what's going on. But, like, the point of all this is that um, there are people that are going to have to do things like update those outdated regulations um, that aren't doing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we aren't 
as the American people or the people of California holding our government accountable to that kind of work. Hmm. And so ultimately, I think I wrote the book to sort of reframe this conversation. A, so people are hearing Bethan and Lawrence's mm-hmm. voices um, so they understand better what's going wrong. But the way I've been trying to explain it to, say, electeds is they think their job is to plant a seed. The seed is like the bill that they want to get passed. Yeah. And they expect that seed to grow. I know you're you're a gardening fan, so I just figured you'd appreciate this one. <laughs> I love this metaphor. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So they expect that seed to grow. And if it provides shade or fruit or flowers for the public, that is how they get glory and get reelected. But as you well know, gardeners don't just plant seeds. They tend the soil. You have to have the water and the pH right yeah. and the sun and all this stuff. And they, you know, that things like updating those outdated regulations, um, you know, getting clear on what the goal is, um, making sure that the people we hire to be public servants can do the job they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot of other things. That's all this tending the soil work. And, you know, I don't think that's going to change because that's what, you know, electeds in both branches, I would say, are like government leaders. You know, they think their job is like get get those get those seeds planted. But I think if if we as the public, when a candidate asked for our dollar or our vote said, sure, I need to know that your values match mine. That's step one. But step two is, how are you tending the soil? What is your role in making this system work and building the foundation in which these seeds can sprout? I think they'll start being more responsive to it. But we have to have some shift that's not just like Bethan and the other callers being like, I'm fighting as hard as I can. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the best I can. We've got to hold other people accountable to changing the environment in which they're trying to get that job done. Yeah, I think, I mean... Civil servants that I have known through time have almost universally uh, just tried so hard and cared so much, yeah, and uh, and yet oftentimes can't do the very things that they're they're tasked yeah. with doing. You know, even in the the most trying of you know the the, the biggest moments of their lives. You know, CDC prepared. Their, their entire organization exists basically to deal yeah. with the pandemic, and it was just such an epic flop. Um, and I think it, it's going to, you know, that agency is going to think about that. People in that agency are going to think about that for, for all of time. We've, uh, we've got some great new people coming into the CDC, I by have the heard way. That. Yeah, no, it's really I good. I've heard that. Um, there is a listener who writes, I, I think these government systems are working exactly as planned. I volunteer for an organization that helps get people voter ID in states trying to make it difficult. I've been trying to get an ID and social security card for a client, but the DMV requires proof of social security number for a W-2. But all W-2s have the first five digits X'd out, and the SSA, that's Social Security Administration, requires a photo ID to get a duplicate social security card. So he Mm. needs a social security card to get a photo ID. He needs a photo ID to get a social security card. He's a person of color who can't vote as designed. It's a very good point. Um, and I I think that is how most people experience it, is this is designed to be, as we'd say in tech, user hostile, um, and that that's coming from political ideology. I won't judge whether, you know, callers write on that exact issue, but I will say much more often than we realize, 
those outcomes are actually unintentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see it because you're going you're gonna to assume that in blue states we have better service delivery. You know, you're, it's easier to get SNAP, for instance. In red states, you know, they're anti-welfare. They're going to keep you off the rolls. When we started working in California through Code for America back in 2014 on SNAP delivery, California, a very pro-welfare state, had the second lowest rate of participation in SNAP in the entire country. Only Wyoming was lower. And you see stuff like that. And again, you go in and you talk to the people actually doing this. It's usually the systems that Bethan and others talked about that are creating that, these requirements that nobody has gone in and just removed um, more often than it is intentional, uh, we would call administrative burden to yeah. to get a different outcome. But Let, it doesn't mean that doesn't exist. It absolutely does. I don't mean to say that they're, that it's never intentional. But let's talk about CalFresh. Such an interesting example, right? Because one of the reasons, as I understand it, why the usage rates or, or take-up rates um, on SNAP in California were so low was that the process for applying, right, was like a 200-plus mm-hmm. question form on the internet, hard to fill out. Like, it was these things that are so... Didn't work on a mobile phone. Yeah, it didn't work on a phone. It was like so basic and yet fundamental to actually delivering on the policy goal of, like, caring for each other. And again, I would say, you know, is that did somebody design that to be hard to use? No, it just sort of nobody designed it. There wasn't a process in place that would, you know, that would look to somebody in service design as a design process at all. Um, I I tell the story in the book about uh, Jake Solomon, who was one of the creators of Get CalFresh, this alternative application that was mobile friendly and and took about seven minutes to, to apply um, he was asked to come to this consortium of counties that were responsible for that 212-question mm-hmm. application. And what he saw is that the way they made decisions was all the 18 counties voted on what features they would add. And all those 18 county representatives were like good people trying to do the right thing. But the system, the, the process was designed to adjudicate between the needs of 18 different you know, essentially offices with their own back-end systems and their own workflows. And nobody had designed the system to sort of put the user of the SNAP application at the center. And it's not because they didn't want to. And once they were uh, exposed to what it looked like to actually try to apply and what an alternative might look like, they pretty quickly pivoted to let's do it this different way. But it, it is a system, not a person problem in that in that case, yeah. for sure. I find that CalFresh example, though, so inspiring, too, right? Because it had real results. Like, more people mm-hmm. get food benefits now. Like, more people are literally eating because we redesigned this, not we, you all, redesigned this form on the Internet. Like, that. Like what could be more inspiring than, than that? It's a low for a technology problem. You know, one other thing about that people don't realize is, like, the – Biggest problem we had with Get CalFresh in the early years. So you have this easier to use application. It's it's not just that it's fewer questions. The questions are easier to understand. They don't talk down to you. They're not in legalese. Like you're, it's it tries to make sense to you, which is really important. Um, the biggest problem we had was that people would go on it and be like, "Oh, this can't be a government application. I must be on a scam site." <laughs> and so that's you know ten years yeah. ago now and. Ten years later, you know, because of things like, yeah, you have covidtest.gov, also very easy to use. The state of California has been using Get CalFresh, now has a new application. 
you know, that's inspired by this. You see many other interfaces to government that are, in the words of one of the first Code for America fellows, simple, beautiful, and easy to use, mm. that it no longer are people assuming that it can't be a government application mm. mm-hmm. because it's it's too friendly and easy. And that's progress. I mean, just to draw out one of the implications here of a few thing, different things that you've said, you know, if it does lead people who are accessing government services to disinvest in the government, if if the services don't work, then if you make the services work, that seems like it would disproportionately help one of the parties. Um, do you think that people on the right actually yeah. want what you say in the book is, you know, less intrusive government interactions and lower regulatory burden, but a government that feels smaller but gets more done? Do, do both parties actually want that? I actually think it's a good question to ask about each party individually. So, um, you know, my frame for this now is state capacity, but which I don't mean the states. It's just a term right. for government capacity. It's sort of an academic term. But, you know, if you're trying to increase state capacity, wouldn't you assume that Democrats want that and Republicans don't? And I and I don't think you can assume either of those things. Um, there's a huge distrust of state capacity by a lot of progressives, understandably, um, they don't want government to have more power for, for, for a lot of valid reasons. And, you know, in terms of Republicans, I, I'm not really sure what the Republican Party is anymore. I, I do know that the, the you know, the, the part of that party that is going to represent probably the presidential nominee, right, cares first and foremost, essentially, about destroying state capacity. That is literally what Trump has said. Uh, I think he calls it the deep state, but and and I, I don't think he really knows what that means either. But like that's what people are reading it as, mm-hmm. and I think he gets some of his power by people having negative experiences mm-hmm. and saying, "Yeah, he's right. We got to destroy this deep state. It mm-hmm. doesn't work. It's 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 frustrating, but it's also insulting." So yes, we have that on that side, but I think you've got a bunch of other folks who either still or. Uh, re- identify as Republicans, or at least did mm-hmm. at one time, recognizing that, yes, the less intrusive part is very valuable to them. The cheaper, better, faster part of this agenda is very valuable to them. And then they see things like, um, you know, our problems with national security as yeah. like, we have to have state they capacity that for that. Right. Yeah. Um, One last thing. Trisha writes, the online link for EDD never worked when I was dealing with EDD 10 or 15 years ago. However, people at EDD officers were brilliant, caring, smart, and devoted to their work and customer service. Thanks for recognizing the heroes at EDD, USPS, and elsewhere. We've been talking about government technology and how it can be improved so that we can improve government. We've been joined by Jennifer Palka, author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.